Welcome to this special episode of A New York Minute in History. I'm WAMC's Jim Lavoulis. Seventy-five years after the end of World War II, the ranks of the so-called greatest generation are dwindling. Among those still able to tell their stories is Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Jr. Turning 96 on the 4th of July, Stewart was a member of the famed Tuskegee Airmen and is featured in National Geographic's coverage of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in the June 2020 issue, which is available at newsstands May 26th. I spoke with Stewart, who began by describing December 7, 1941. Oh, I remember it when I was coming from uh, Sunday school, I guess it was, on, uh, on that fateful day, or infamous day, and uh, I was living near LaGuardia Airport in New York at the time, and uh, these uh, aircraft, fighter aircraft, were taking off. Uh, they were P-39 Barra uh, Cobras taking off from the LaGuardia Airport. There were three of them. Uh, they got into formation, and they were very flying very, very low over the city of New York there, and I was curious as to what was going on, but uh, when I did get from Sunday school, I went upstairs, and of course the news was on at the time then that the uh, Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, I immediately felt that uh, it wouldn't be long before I would be uh, called into the service because uh, the draft had started, and even though I was only, uh, I guess, 16 or 17 at the time, it wouldn't be long before the uh, uh, draft would call me up. And you were eventually drafted, is that correct? That's correct. Of course, I, I tried to uh, uh, determine where I would be assigned uh, in going into the service, because if you uh, were just drafted, uh, you could be placed anywhere by any uh Uh, part of the services that there was the Army, Navy, or the Marines. I wanted to be a pilot, and I wanted to take pilot training. So I took an examination uh, for pilot uh, training. I passed the examination, and as a result, when I was called into the service, I was called in specifically to take training as an aviation cadet. And why was it that you wanted to fly, wanted to be a pilot? You know, I think it was uh, something that was built in my system from from early childhood. My uh, folks used to tell me that uh, uh, when I was two years old, we lived in Virginia at the time near uh, Langley Field. And uh, when my parents would put me out in the crib, they told me that when the Army planes would fly over, I would crane my neck looking at them and sort of coo at the planes there and then, Uh, Later on, uh, we moved to New York City near LaGuardia Airport, and it was at that time that I used to go over to the airport and stand by the uh, fence on the periphery there and watch the planes take off and fantasize about my being the pilot flying that uh, plane there. So I think it was just uh, an acquired, I guess you would call it, uh, desire that uh, I grew up with as a child. Could you take us through your training as a Tuskegee Airman? Well, the training was uh, uh, out of the same playbook as the uh, as the Air Corps throughout the United States, even though I went into the service into a segregated group down at Tuskegee, Alabama. Uh, we operated from the same Air Corps playbook. 
Uh, it started out with my going through the college training detachment, and uh, I spent six months uh, in college uh, uh, getting uh, attuned to uh, subject matter that uh, would be appropriate for the uh, future uh, studies that I would t be taking on the uh, uh, air base that I was going to. Uh, then I started the actual cadet training, which was uh, four phases. It was uh, pre-flight for two and a half months, uh, primary flying for uh, two and a half months, uh, base flying for two and a half months. And then the final phase was uh, advanced flying, which was another uh, two and a half months, at which time I, uh, I graduated and I received my uh, wings as a uh, certified uh, military pilot and also my uh, uh, gold bars as a second lieutenant. Is it correct that you learned to fly a plane before you knew how to drive a car? <laughs> yes, yes, that is correct. Uh, you know, in, in, in New York with the uh, rapid transit system that they have there, there was really no need for a car. Uh, between the uh, buses, the uh, ferries, and the uh, L, the trains that they had, uh, and taxi cabs, it was easy, pretty easy to get around the uh, uh, environs of the city there. So there was no need for my family having a car at the time, even though uh, I don't think we were probably uh, uh, as well off uh, financially uh, to uh, buy a car. But Anyway, uh, uh, as it goes, I, uh, I got my wings in the service there with, without knowing how to drive a car at the time there. Which one was more difficult to learn, how to fly a plane or drive a car? Oh, I, I think that uh, the training in flying was you know, very, very concentrated, and it, uh, the total number of hours I got, uh, in flying there was something like uh, before I got my wings in training was about uh, 200 hours or so and to uh, learn to drive a car why uh, I imagine uh, a week of training or 10 days of training or something that that wouldn't be that difficult which would be about 10 hours so certainly flying the plane would be uh, uh, the learning process would be more difficult not too comparable. <laughs> Not too comparable. Uh, one of the things that I did in, in, in flying, which, uh, you know, we used to use these go-karts when we were a kid, and uh, the way in controlling the go-karts, you know, there's a crossbar by your feet there, and that uh, you would push your uh, right foot in to uh, go ahead and turn left, and you would push your left foot forward in order to, uh, to go right. And in the plane, it was just the opposite. And uh, uh, that was what they called a negative transference. I believe is that I, I had a difficult time at first trying to overcome uh, coordinating and using the proper foot for the, uh, for the rudder pedals there. But uh, I soon, soon overcame that and uh, got to get the hang of it. As a fighter pilot, you flew 43 combat missions over Europe, and you were awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross. What went through your mind when you were in the air in those moments? Uh, well, uh, it was a sort of a love of, uh, of, of flying there. Uh, when I first went overseas, I uh, 
I, I was flying formation in the uh, first couple of missions that I had, and I had no idea of, uh, of what was going on except that I was keeping close to my uh, leader at the time there. But uh, soon after I started uh, getting acclimated to uh, being up in the combat zone there, uh, being flying in large formations with the uh, other aircraft, uh, I, uh, I I got to uh, really enjoy the idea, the the panorama, I would say, of the scene I would see before me with the hundreds of bombers and the hundreds of fighter planes up there, and all of them pulling the condensation trails, and uh, it was just a ballet in the sky and a a feeling of uh, belonging to something that was really big. And uh, I I must say that even though it was wartime, uh, uh, I found it exciting and enjoyable. During one of those missions, you've said that you were in the crosshairs of a German fighter. Do you recall having time to think in that moment, or did you just act? I, I just acted uh, at that time there. All my previous training came to four, and uh, I, I, my, my whole uh, effort at the time there was to uh, get out of his crosshairs because he had me he had me dead to right, and uh, it was a very frightening situation. And uh, I thought that uh, he had really had me because uh, uh, I was in his crosshairs there, but. Uh, uh, I went into a very, very steep dive, uh, I guess what they call a uh, split S, and uh, uh, I was fairly close to the ground at the time there, and I was making some very, very tight turns, uh, trying to shake them off of my tail while I was down near the ground there, and evidently, I don't know whether he was an inexperienced pilot or or what, but uh, he went into a high-speed stall. Uh, in other words, he lost control uh, of the plane itself, and he he crashed. And uh, I did get credit for for uh, destroying his aircraft, even though uh, he was on my tail there. One of your fellow fighters, Walter Manning, was shot down over Austria. Can you share with us what happened to him? Yes. Uh, Walter was uh, shot down, and uh, uh, there were seven of us at the time. We were over in uh, Austria, and we were on what was known as a fighter sweep, looking for targets of opportunity. And uh, we ran into a horde of uh, FW-190s. They were German fighter planes there, and uh, a big fight ensued. And uh, three of us uh, of the five were, were shot down. Uh, one made it back to Yugoslavia and was able to get back to uh, friendly territory the same day. Uh, another uh, was uh, killed instantly. Uh, he was shot down. And Walter Manning, uh, I didn't know what happened to him at first. I know that he, he did bail out, but we didn't hear anything from him uh, or about him until years later. And uh, an investigation had taken place many, many years after he had gone down, and they found out that uh, he landed safely in his parachute, but he was uh, picked up by a uh, mob that delivered him to the uh, local jailhouse, awaiting for the military to pick him up and 
taken to the uh, prisoner of war camp uh, while he was waiting there. Uh, uh, two nights later, a, another mob came and broke into the jail, took Walter out, and uh, lynched him. They hung him from a uh, lamppost. Lieutenant Colonel, in your mind, was Walter Manning lynched because of his race or because he was an American? Uh, both. And uh, I would go on to say that uh, he was uh, not the only uh, uh, American, or I should say allied airman, that uh, was uh, lynched in Austria. Uh, there were a number of them. But uh, to get the crowd worked up by uh, eyewitnesses that were there, uh, they testified that the uh, Nazi soldiers uh, were uh, working up the uh, emotions of the uh, Austrian people and uh, telling them stories about uh, uh, racial uh, epithets about uh, the uh, Walter Manning and that uh, he should be lynched. That's what they, they would do in his country, and uh, that's exactly what the mob did. So World War II ends in 1945. You continue to serve in the Army Air Forces until 1950. Can you describe uh, to our listeners uh, what you did after the, your service? Well, yes. Uh, I got out of the service because of a large reduction in force. Uh, at the time, there the budget constraints uh, on the on the military. But uh, when I got out of the service, I decided, well, let me see. Even though I know there was prejudice and uh, discrimination as far as employment and the airlines at the time. Uh, realizing that I had accumulated a large number of flying hours and uh, uh, while I was in the service there, I applied for two, at, to two airlines uh, uh, as, a, as a pilot, and I was uh, rejected, summarily rejected. Uh, I decided then that uh, uh, it didn't look like I would be able to uh, get a job as a uh, pilot in the airlines, so... I went and took a fallback position and decided to go to school and get my uh, degree. I got a degree in uh, uh, mechanical engineering from New York University and stayed in the uh, in the civilian field uh, as an engineer. But uh, I'm so happy to say that even though I was not able to realize my ambition as far as flying for the airlines was concerned is that not many years after, I guess it was around 1970, about 20 years after I had initially applied there, that uh, uh, African-Americans were being accepted as uh, pilots in the airlines until today. Uh, every major airline that we have in the country, we have uh, uh, airmen and air ladies who are flying the uh, aircraft of uh, United, American, Delta, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, service uh, companies like uh, Amazon, and, uh, all of those. So uh, the, it was just a matter of timing and a, a matter of uh, things uh, becoming better that uh, African-Americans uh, would 
be able to uh, in, in, enjoy getting employment as uh, air crew members uh, in the airlines. As you mentioned, you grew up in New York City, attended NYU. That's an area hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic right now. Do you still have family or friends in the area? I do. I do. And uh, I, I keep in contact with them. And uh, uh, all of them have been faced. Uh, uh, my uh, uh the only person, well, yes, they're they're all safe and all doing well, and uh, we knock on wood and pray that uh, it'll stay that way. With the exception of September 11th, perhaps the last time there was an event that impacted the entire nation on such a scale as this coronavirus pandemic was World War II. And I'm wondering that with your experiences, do you see any similarities between the national call to action in the 1940s to what is happening today? Well, I uh, I would say there was a, a sort of an esprit de corps that uh, uh, was in the nation back in the uh, 40s there. Uh, I, I think our, our young men and, and uh, women, but uh, they, they didn't offer the opportunities in service for women as they did for the uh, uh, men at the time there. But uh, it seems as though uh, in school and uh, in our daily activities there, as we talked about going into the service and actually trying to volunteer to uh, go into the service. Uh, our uh, uh, patriotism. I, I, I just remember it was, you know, very, very strong at the time. I remember in school is that uh, every day that we go to school, the first class, we'd stand beside our desks and we place our right hand over our heart and uh, pledge, uh, say, the pledge allegiance to the United States of America. And uh, there just seemed to be a lot more cohesiveness and uh, in the country than. Uh, than we have today. And because of part of what you described, your generation is often called the greatest generation. Is there anything you'd like those who are not part of that generation to know about what you and others did? Well, I think as uh, history uh, uh, tells uh, this generation what that generation did and the uh, reasons behind it and uh, what we were fighting for and the uh, unification uh, that we had there, uh, uh, even though we had our uh, prejudices and uh, there was discrimination and uh, it's more hurtful uh, than uh, it is today, is that in, we pushed some of those uh, feelings aside there uh, in order to fight a uh, onerous and... Uh, the dictatorships of the Nazis and the uh, awful empire of the uh, Japanese nation at that time there. So I think through history and through telling the stories uh, of these people of that generation there and uh, uh, just what ha was happening at that time may serve to inspire and inculcate uh, in the youth of today some feelings of uh, 
patriotism similar to what we felt back during World War II. Well, Lieutenant Colonel, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to add or uh, mention anything that I didn't ask. No, I, I can't think of it. Uh, I, I did say just one thing is that uh, I, I did, after I retired, uh, had the uh, fortune to start flying again. I uh, renewed my license, and uh, I had a chance to uh, uh, take up the, the flying again in a local airfield around here, and I, I spent uh, a number of years in my... Uh, 80s up until close to 90, around 89 there, uh, taking up neighborhood children and uh, flying them around and uh, trying to orient them to the uh, aircraft and uh, orient them to flying there and hoping that uh, maybe someday uh, one or two of them might decide that they would take in uh, uh, piloting uh, uh, as uh, as a vocation. And which they did. And uh, there are a couple of kids that I had flown during that time now who are currently uh, flying with the airlines. That's incredible. That's incredible. From 18 to the 80s in the air. Yes. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Jr. of the Army Air Forces and a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, thank you for your time, sir, and your service. Thank you.